Okay, we're in Acts 24. Um, we're in a kind of a lot of storytelling portions of the book of Acts, the uh, real narrative sections here. So Acts 24, uh, Luke is doing a lot of interesting things in the chapters uh, we have been in. So God is going to get Paul to Rome. Paul wanted to just go there by himself. God has ordained that he takes a long circuitous route through the Roman legal system to get there. So that's what's going on. We're kind of in the middle of that. So we saw how Paul previously was almost killed by a mob in Jerusalem. He was taken into Roman custody. He stood before the great Jerusalem council taken there by the Roman um, tribune. And that council ended up being a kind of a theological scrum, as you could call it, uh, between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the Romans had to pull Paul out of there to save him. And then a plot was hatched to assassinate Paul by more than 40 Jews who swore not to eat until he was dead. Now listen, let me give you some all some practical advice. Never vow not to eat until. Just don't, don't do it. I don't know what happened to those guys, but... They didn't get them, so it's just embarrassing. You know, it's embarrassing when you finally got to eat and your wife says, oh, I thought you swore, you know. Plus, you're making a vow, a vow to God that you're going to do something. So you should say something like, we will hazard our lives upon the death of Paul. If you're going to murder somebody, do something like that. Don't make a vow about not eating. It's just, it's really unhealthy and it's a bad idea. And you'll always feel guilty at every barbecue because... Somebody there is going to remind you that didn't you make a vow not to eat until Paul was dead? I hear that Paul's still alive, so don't do that. Anyway, so to save Paul's life, um, after finding out he was a Roman citizen, the Roman commander in Jerusalem, a man named Claudius Lysias, sent Paul under heavy guard to Caesarea, which is the center of Roman power in that part of the world. So now in Caesarea, Paul is fully in Roman hands. And Luke spends a lot of chapters here telling us how various officials and rulers in the empire handled Paul's case. So in some senses it's sort of a legal thing going on. But I think Luke shows us once again um, what a real honest broker he is in terms of as a historian. Luke, not a few historians have pointed out the incredible level of knowledge and detail Luke had about the ancient world because these guys are traveling all the time but here we actually see that he's he's a fair man in terms of his uh, appraisals of men that Paul has to stand before and when secular history tells us about some of these same people what we find in the New Testament here under with Luke is pretty similar information about these people in other words their character qualities are very similar to what was already known about them so it's another real t- historical tie to these people and Luke doesn't bash people. He, uh, we see a justice system that works actually pretty well on some kind of basic level. But human corruption is pretty evident in the things that Paul's going to be dealing with. But it's not overwhelmingly evil. You know, like Luke, Luke's job isn't to say the Romans are evil and, and we're all good and anything like that. He, he doesn't do that. He gives a pretty straight, easy to um, grasp and historically valid and accurate way of looking at things. Some people... Some people look at the book of Acts, uh, especially unbelieving scholars, and they say the whole book was written to uh, make the Romans happy. It's a way to flatter Rome, um, to make Christianity more acceptable as the word goes out and more uh, Romans of importance end up reading the book of Acts. Um, He's trying to 
make them look good. I don't see that at all. He's not doing that. He's, he's more than willing to point out their failures. Even the Tribune, Claudius Lysias, he's portrayed somewhat sympathetically as a guy trying to get things done in the right way, but um, Luke's already shown that he can be pretty cruel and he's also a man who's willing to lie to his superiors if it's going to keep him out of trouble. He, he shows that too, but he doesn't make him out to be some kind of a monster. He's just, Luke's just honest about these things. So he's not out to portray Rome as evil, nor is he trying to pretend that they are extra wonderful to get on their good side. He's not kissing up to the powers that be or anything like that. It's just fair. And he takes men as they come. And I think any ancient reader that picked up the book of Acts and was reading it that lived in the Roman Empire, they would say, yep, that's pretty much the way it is. You know. So Luke would want them to see him not as kissing up to the Romans, but as fair-minded. And I, it, it, that's the way we should all see the way we should treat people and talk about things going on in the world around us we should always be seen as fair-minded people that's really important for a Christian so um, Luke obviously had as his primary purpose telling the story of how Paul came to preach the gospel in Rome but through these events um, Luke is going to use Paul's experience before powerful men with a spiritual purpose and that is to highlight the way these different men respond to the gospel. So that's more of the spiritual point we want to make at least as we come to the end of this story today. And then we'll start another story just like it um, next week with new, new uh, officials. How, how do these governors and kings respond to the gospel? So today we're starting with a governor. His name's Antonius Felix. He's the procurator of Samaria. Um, which has jurisdiction over Judea as well. So Jerusalem is under his control, Samaria is under his control. Uh, Paul was sent to him in Caesarea as a prisoner and a letter accompanied Paul with a fairly accurate, fairly accurate telling of what had happened from the, from the Roman commander there in Jerusalem informing Felix that a Jewish delegation would soon be arriving to press formal charges against Paul. So they arrive five days later. In verse 1 of chapter 24, after five days the high priest Ananias came down with some elders, so the high priest is coming, with an attorney named Tertullus, and they brought charges to the governor against Paul. So they brought with them one of their best legal minds uh, from Jerusalem, Tertullus, he's a lawyer. And we get a pretty good taste of first century uh, court rhetoric here, legal rhetoric from a, a lawyer. Uh, as this story kind of progresses here. Flattery is pretty common uh, in these kinds of speeches that lawyers would make. If you want to win your case, win your judge. I don't know if you guys followed the Jesse Smollett case at all, but his, his lawyers insulted the judge constantly. And uh, that's not a good, not a good plan. Don't, don't do that after the trial insult the judge, but don't do it during the trial. I don't know if you remember, but Johnny Cochran in the O.J. Simpson trial, some of you aren't old enough for that, but um, he, he just flattered Judge Ito all the way through that thing. He just knew how to play it. His guy was a master. He was a great lawyer. Tertullus is sort of like that, okay? So verse 2. After Paul had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying to the governor, Since we have, through you, attained much peace, and since by your providence reforms are being carried out for this nation, we acknowledge this is in every way and everywhere most excellent Felix with all thankfulness. You are just the best governor. You are just so good. He praises him for bringing peace and for bringing reforms. 
that is probably just flattery because actually there wasn't a lot of peace under Felix's reigns. There were rebellions and then he put down the rebellions brutally which caused more rebellions so he was sort of at war quite often actually and he if you want to call peace slaughtering people maybe that's the definition and he might take it that way. Yeah you're right I am a peacemaker. I crush anybody and but anyway. Uh, but he's a very interesting man with a very interesting background. And we know this from history so there's quite a bit about him that we know. He was born a slave, but he gained his freedom when his brother became a favorite of Antonia, who was the mother of the Emperor Claudius. So he's got imperial connections. Uh, pretty unusual for even a freedman to, to get that high in Roman society. And Romans by birth tended to look down their noses at people like that. You know, it's not, does this guy really appreciate what it means to be a Roman? You know, they did talk about him behind his back and that kind of stuff. Um, but Tacitus, a Roman historian, now he said of Felix, this is his one sentence take on Antonius Felix, he said, he exercised the power of a king with the mind of a slave, which is a pretty big put down, right? So I don't know if that was an accurate put down or a snooty Roman put down, you know, <laughs> to a guy that was born a slave or had grown up a slave, so I don't know. But Tertullus is a flatterer, we see it right there. He tries to win Felix's good graces also by promising to be brief, verse 4. That's another thing, the way to get judges on your side. Verse 4, but that I may not weary you any further, I beg you to grant us by your kindness a brief hearing. Yeah. So here are the charges he's going to lay out. There's basically three charges. One is Paul is a pest. <laughs> He causes trouble among the Jews everywhere he goes in the empire, in the Roman Empire. Now from a Jewish perspective there's actually some truth to that. There, Paul was a pest for them, but nothing illegal or nothing against Rome or anything like that. The second charge is he's a ringleader against, uh, uh, um, of this Nazarene sect as they called it. And uh, now that's kind of true if you can make a case against the Nazarenes as being bad, which they'd have to be able to do that. So the, the ringleader kind of phrase is sort of a negative, right? And then the third thing is he tried to desecrate the temple in Jerusalem. And that was what all the trouble and the rioting all started and all of that, which is not true at all. He didn't do anything like that. So this gets pretty interesting. The original charge that was brought against um, him was that he brought a Gentile into the temple. Tertullus doesn't even say anything about that. Uh, he, does, he says he desecrated the temple in some way. We'll, get, we'll look at what he says here. So let's go, verse 5 here. Um, he's making it out like Paul did some dastardly deed here. For we have found this man a real pest and a fellow who stirs up dissension among all the Jews throughout the world and a ringleader of the sect called the Nazarenes. Those are the first two things. Then verse 6, he even tried to desecrate the temple and then we arrested him. That makes it sound like kind of a formal thing instead of a mob dragging him out to beat him to death. Um, but that's actually what happened. Now the next little section here, some of your Bibles don't have it and some of your Bibles put it in the margin and my Bible puts it in brackets. That's because there are some manuscripts that have this and some manuscripts that don't, the ancient manuscripts. So um, I'm just going to read it. So this is like the second half of verse 6 through the first half of verse 8. We wanted to judge him according to our law, but Lysias the commander came along and with much violence took him out of our hands, ordering his accusers to come before you. So that's the little textual thing. Now it's all true, it's already in the story we've already read, so it doesn't matter one way or another, it doesn't change anything. But he may have said that, he may not have had said those details. 
But then after that he says, by examining him yourself, this is in all the manuscripts, concerning all these matters, you will be able to ascertain the things of which we accuse him. So you examine him yourself, and you'll find out that everything we're saying is true. Then verse 9 it says, the Jews, the other ones with Tertullus, also joined in the attack, asserting that these things were so. So, Tertullus is saying this should have remained a matter for the Jews to resolve within Jewish rights as prescribed by Rome, but Lysias the commander jumped in there and violently took him out of our hands and made this kerfuffle that's going on right now. He, he brought it into the Roman courts, Lys, Lys, Claudius Lysias. So that's his case. Now Felix, actually I don't know if they know it, but he has a letter from Claudius Lysias about what actually happened. You remember that? So back in chapter 23 verse 27 Luke actually includes the letter. I'm going to read it again for you just so you can be up to speed if you weren't here last time. When this man was arrested by the Jews, this is his report, okay? When Paul was arrested by the Jews and was about to be slain by them, I came up to them with the troops and rescued them having learned that he was a Roman. That's the little lie he tells because he didn't actually learn that then. He learned it later after when he was about to scourge Paul. Remember when Paul says, um, are you really supposed to scourge a Roman citizen without a trial? Oh no, what do we do? Okay, so... Verse 28, and wanting to ascertain the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council, the great council, the Sanhedrin. He did do that. And I found him to be accused over questions about their law, but under no accusation deserving death or imprisonment. When I was informed that there would be a plot against this man, I sent him to you at once, also instructing his accusers to bring charges against him before you. So that's the letter, the report that Felix has. And Claudius Lysias is going to come to Caesarea too. He's coming soon. So Claudius is really clear. The Jews, acting as a mob, were about to kill Paul. Paul was under no accusation of any kind deserving of death. There was a plot to subvert justice by the Jews through assassination. So Tertullus asks Felix in verse 8 to examine Paul, but because of the information he already has, Felix decides to let Paul, let Paul just talk. Just, what, what do you have to say? So he, he's not going to probe him with all kinds of questions or anything like that. So Paul starts off, not with pointless flattery, like some other people do, but affirming that Felix has been in the country long enough to understand these Jewish issues. So Paul goes straight to the main thing. And the main thing is, what is the truth about this allegation that I tried to desecrate the temple? What's the truth about that? So verse 10. When the governor had nodded for him to speak, Paul responded, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge to this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. Since you can take note of the fact that no more than 12 days ago I went up to Jerusalem to worship. I'm not some kind of rabble-rouser in Jerusalem. I have only went there 12 days ago. Neither in the temple, nor in the synagogues, nor in the city itself did they find me carrying on a discussion with anyone and causing a riot. The fact is, Paul didn't preach while he was in Jerusalem on this trip. I mean, he just got there, and then they had him take this, this plan that they had, so he did nothing to cause a riot. In fact, he went to the temple to worship. He didn't go there to defile it in any way. And that's all he did there. And there's no proof of anything that they're saying, verse 13. Nor can they prove to you the charges of which they now accuse me. So how about the second accusation that Paul was the ringleader of a sect. Well, Paul very carefully ties what he calls the way. Christianity in the early years was called the way. Following Christ, 
he ties it to historic Judaism. So verse 14, this I admit to you, that according to the way, which they call a sect, I do serve the God of our fathers, believing everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men cherish themselves, that there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So what's he saying? He says, I completely believe in the God of the scriptures, all of the scriptures, and I'm 100% there. And of course he does. I mean, the law typifies Christ and all the scriptures speak of him and the prophets foretell him. Of course he believes all that. Notice in verse 15 how Paul includes the doctrine of the resurrection as well, just like he did before the council. That's what started the fight between the Pharisees and the Sadducees because Sadducees don't believe in a resurrection. But he assures everybody listening he does not deviate from Moses. He does not deviate from the prophets. He believes all of it. So, he says, my conscience is clear. Verse 16. In view of this, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience both before God and before men. So, what was Paul doing in Jerusalem? Well, he's going to tell him. He said, I... I was there to bring money to the poor, which is exactly right. I mean, we talked about that in great detail. He, he'd been collecting this funds for months, maybe a couple of years, and from the Gentile churches to bring a gift to the, the poor in Jerusalem. Verse 17, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings, in which they found me occupied in the temple, having been purified without any crowd or uproar. Remember when he got there, they told him, James and the other um, leaders of the church in Jerusalem said, there's a big hubbub about you. We want you to pay for and take four or five men into the temple, pay for their purification ceremony, and you stay there with them and go through it yourself. And he did do that. That's, that's the first thing he did. He didn't preach in the streets. He didn't cause any trouble. He took these guys to show that he was Jewish, just to show that he's still Jewish and the temple is still important to him and he's willing to worship there and all of that. So... They actually had him do that for that specific purpose, and that's what he did. So that's what he's talking about here. So he's accurately telling what happened. Far from desecrating the temple, he was involved in a week-long purification ritual in the temple. The whole time, there was no riot, there was no uproar. He didn't defile anything, he didn't cause a stir. Verse 18, but there were some Jews from Asia, and this is exactly what happened. That's what the story we read earlier. So somebody there from Asia said, Paul's brought a Gentile into the temple, and that was because Paul had been walking the streets of Jerusalem with Trophimus, who was a Gentile believer in Christ, and, and they just, they jumped the gun and said, oh, he's brought him, wait, Trophimus wasn't in the temple, but they just accused him of that, and that's what started the riot. So, um, but there were some Jews from Asia who ought to have been present before you and to make an accusation. Strange those guys aren't here. If they should have anything against me. So Paul is kind of like, Tertullus, uh, where are those guys that uh, saw me bring a Gentile into the temple? I mean, that's what it was all about. Shouldn't, shouldn't they be here to testify? I mean, since the whole mess was based on their claims. I mean, you brought a claim against me, like, and you didn't bring the witnesses? Uh, what's going on? I'm paraphrasing what Paul is saying. And governor, shouldn't I be able to face my accusers? I mean, that is part of our legal system, is it not? The, a key element of Roman law. So... After raising the question of the absence of witnesses, Paul goes on to what he said before the council in Jerusalem. And again, this is really accurate based on what we already have read in the, in the book. And since the count, some council members are present, including the high priest, they should be able to tell what happened there too. So Paul says, verse 20, 
or else let these men themselves tell what misdeed they found when I stood before the council, other than for this one statement which I shouted while standing among them, for the resurrection of the dead I am on trial before you today. Remember he said that? And that's what started the fight between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And then it got so heated that the Roman tribune pulled Paul out of there. So, Paul's saying, if there was a crime, it was that statement, because that's the only thing I've said. And that is not a crime. So it's pretty, that's pretty much what Felix has to deal with here. So, uh, there is one witness he wants to hear from, and that's Claudius Lysias, the Roman tribune, who's going to be coming uh, to Caesarea, but he's not there yet. We also learn that Felix knows about the Jesus movement already. It's not new to him. Verse 22. But Felix, this is Luke talking now, having a more exact knowledge about the way, put them off, saying, when Lysias the commander comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion for him to be kept in custody and yet have some freedom and not to prevent any of his friends from ministering to him. So there's levels of uh, custody in the Roman legal system. He could be thrown in a dungeon to starve and rot, or he could be kind of put under sort of a house arrest situation, or he could be within their domain, like inside the praetorium, but treated well. In other words, he could have visitors and... He can walk around in the gardens or whatever. He just can't leave, you know. And that's kind of that middle ground where he's going to be. So he's going to be there, but um, he can have friends come. And most of Paul's captivity um, during this first season of custody is going to be like that. They're going to treat him with respect because he's a citizen of Rome. So uh, you don't just throw guys in the dungeon without conviction. So um, that's that's kind of what's going on here. So it's a pretty easy, but you could call it a gentle captivity. And again, a pretty typical treatment for a citizen. Verse 24, um, we find a really excellent opportunity. Now now we're getting to the point where Paul is going to share the faith with the Roman rulers. Okay, Verse 24, some days later, Felix arrived with Drusilla, his wife, who was a Jewess. So he's married to a Jewess. I'll tell you their story in a minute. That's pretty interesting. And he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. So he actually sent for Paul and let Paul preach to him and his wife. That's kind of cool. A Roman governor hears about faith in Christ from a chosen apostle. That's one reason God ordained Paul to go through the system rather than just travel to Rome. He's going to be preaching to very important people. And this is the first time that happens. I hope they show movies of that sermon in heaven because I really want to hear how he did that. But also here we meet Drusilla, and Drusilla's just a really interesting story uh, historically that doesn't say a lot about her here. Although, again, in one family of Greek manuscripts, it says that she was the one that had him bring Paul. She's the one that wanted to hear from Paul. She's pretty interesting. She's the youngest daughter of Herod Agrippa. Herod Agrippa is the man that murdered the apostle James, the brother of John, in Acts chapter 12. And then also in Acts 12, he's the guy that let people call him a god and then died pretty much on the spot. So um, that's that guy. So she's his daughter. And about the time of this story here, Drusilla's about 20 years old. And when she was very young, she was given in marriage to the king of Emesa, which is a kind of a petty state and part of Syria. It's a little, little kingdom there. And uh, she was the, the wife of that king. When she was 16, Felix 
met her, he came to visit that place and just was enthralled with her beauty as a 16-year-old. He liked, he liked some young. And um, he enlisted the help of a magician, one of these sorcerer-type characters that manipulated people. We've met them before in the Book of Acts. You know, they're just playing on people's superstitions and stuff. But this guy was named Atamos, and he got Atamos to persuade her that it was the will of the gods or whatever to, to leave her husband and become Felix's wife. And she did. So she actually became his wife. So his third wife. So I don't know how many wives he got by means of sorcery, but this one he got that way. So um, she would bear a son to Felix uh, named Agrippa also. And just as a historical note, he ended up dying in the eruption of Mount Vesuvius, which buried Pompeii, you know. So her son ended up being killed when that volcano exploded. It's just interesting stuff. So what does Paul uh, talk to Felix and Drusilla about? Verse 25. Uh, that background is sort of helpful when you, when you read verse 25. As he was discussing righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. <laughs> now just think about how they met and how she became his wife. Uh, Felix became frightened and said, go away for the present, and when I find time, I will summon you. That is so telling. Go away for the present. He doesn't want to deal with it. I don't want to hear it. You're coming a little too close to my personal business. Everyone's personal business is God's business. Everyone's personal business. It's his world. He's the judge of the world. It's all his business. And when people say, don't judge me, or God is my judge, you say, yes, he is the judge. But he's going to measure you by the standard that he gave in the Bible. That's, that's his standard. And if you don't know the Bible, he'll judge you by your own standard, which you're not going to do very well with either. Because what you condemn in other people, you're probably guilty of yourself in a lot of ways. So it's not your universe. It's not your universe. And if you reject what he says that he cares about with regard to your behavior, then all you can say is you've been warned, you know. Jesus is not just the all-sufficient Savior of those who trust in him. He himself also is the righteous judge. The scripture goes over and over about that. John 5, 22, Jesus said, not even, not even the Father judges anyone. He has given all judgment to the Son. Paul said in Romans 2, 16, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. All the things we hide or never share with anybody or the dark things inside of us, we... It's all going to be out there being judged by Christ. Nothing men think they're getting away with, they'll get away with it. They won't be able to get away with any of that. And so in Acts 17.31, when Paul was preaching in Athens, he said that God had fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, who would that be, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. So over and over, Scripture says that Christ is the judge that we're going to face on that great day. So Paul is offering Felix forgiveness from God through the gift of Jesus' sacrifice for, for his sins. He's offering him that. But Felix says, go away for now. Go away for now. He, he's, that's so sad. It's so sad. It's, just, it's kind of heartbreaking. 
Paul's getting too close to personal business. It bothers Felix, but not to the point of faith. It's okay to be bothered. You should be bothered. And, and Paul was offering him a gracious and merciful Savior, and he doesn't want it. Never say to the gospel messenger, go away for now. What you should say is, I want to hear more. I mean, that's really what it should be. Tell me more. Benjamin Franklin famously said, don't put off till tomorrow what you can do today, right? And I would just change that a little bit and say, don't put off to tomorrow what you should do today. And one thing you should do is you've got an apostle before you who is listening to what he has to say. The most important things are, are the can-dos. I mean, uh, the most important things turn can-dos to should-dos, right? I mean, if something's really important, it's not don't put off today what you can do tomorrow. Don't put off today what you should do. You should do today. Don't wait to repent. Don't wait to come to Jesus. Uh, pursue him until you have him. That's what he's saying. He will judge the world in righteousness. And if you're not righteous enough to merit heaven, and you aren't, none of us are, he will give you his righteousness. He'll do that if you acknowledge him as your king and bow before him and put your faith in him. Don't put it off. Felix was fearful. He was feeling fearful by the message. And that's good. Because we should be afraid in a very healthy way. You know what? We should be afraid of significant danger. Right? You know? If my car is burning, I should be fearful of diving through the window to rescue my wallet. I, I, <laughs> let it burn. Right? I mean, there's things you should be you should be afraid of, and it's totally appropriate. Nothing is more fearful. Nothing is more fearful than coming up empty on Judgment Day. I, I, nothing is worse than that. And Felix was frightened about Paul's words about his sin, but he puts him off instead of listening. I would love to think that Felix thought well of that later and let his fears lead him to Christ. I would love for that to be true, but it doesn't seem like that's what happened. In fact, um, we have evidence here that his mind was just stuck in this world. Luke tells us what was in his heart in verse 26. He says, At the same time, too, he was hoping that money would be given him by Paul. Therefore, he used to send for him quite often and converse with him. Sure, Paul says some scary stuff, but these Christians would probably pay some pretty good bucks to have him back. So, uh... Once he kind of got it all settled in his head that Paul was no big deal, he would have him because he was entertaining to him. Last week we talked about John 3.19. Remember that verse? This is the judgment that light has come into the world, but men love darkness rather than the light, for their deeds are evil. Remember that? Felix loved the darkness. He, he was attached to his sins. And here he's got an apostle to talk to, and all he's really thinking in the back of his mind while he's talking to him is, you know, I'm going to keep this guy here because they might pay for him eventually. Which is not just for one thing. That's another sin that he'll be judged for. Hearing the gospel message bothered him, but not to the point of surrendering himself to a savior that would save him from his sins. He had what he wanted and forgiveness wasn't important to him and he was satisfied with his life. He, he, he had his babe. Uh, he chose sin over God. And one has to choose because God requires repentance. And you have to choose whether you're going to do that or not. We live in a really interesting time when lots of effort is pull, put into telling people that they can have God and their sin. 
Meaning that that's, that's the dominant voice of the culture. You can have God and your sin. And that's the greatest lie that there is. Because sin is anti-God. That's exactly what it is. That's The essence of it is anti-God. So Felix doesn't let his conscience get the best of him. He suppresses his own conscience. But he did meet with Paul again, often, Luke says, but mainly to get a bribe. And he enjoyed talking with Paul, but I guess only because it was amusing to him or interesting to him. But his heart did not awaken. Money and power were more important than his soul. So he kept Paul in custody for two years, and that's the last verse here, verse 27. After two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus. And wishing to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul imprisoned. Another corrupt act, another unjust act. So one, one side he was keeping Paul to hopefully get some money out of the Christians to let him go, a bribe. And the other motive was he wanted to keep the Jews happy. He wasn't going to turn him over because Paul's a citizen and he would, get, he would get in trouble for unjustly turning over a citizen to a mob or to a, 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 an unjust situation. But he, he's going to keep him for two years under arrest and just let things kind of float, you know. He's going to let Paul languish, neither freeing him nor deciding against him to make the Jews happy. So he's doing everything for himself. It's all about him. These will keep, these will keep my alliances with the chief priests well. They might give me some money from the Christians. He was thinking about everything except, I'm going to stand before God one day, and I really do have to make an account, and he's going to judge the thoughts and intentions of my heart, and I'm going to come up really short. He won't even think about that. And I know Paul, in meeting with him, would keep pressing those points, but he didn't do anything about it. He's going to give an account, but he doesn't believe it. We're all either going to stand in our sins before God or we're going to stand in the righteousness of Christ. That's why Paul tells everybody he can that there's salvation in Christ. So two more years in custody for him, um, but at the end of those years, we're told, there's a new governor, and his name is Festus, and a new effort by the chief priests in Jerusalem to get their hands on Paul. They haven't forgotten about him during those two years. As soon as there's a new governor, they say, let's go to Festus and let's get Paul and we'll take care of him. Let's see if they succeed. That'll be next Sunday. Okay. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for what Luke shares with us today. We see Paul here faithful, faithful in every circumstance. He trusted you even though he was in custody and may we be similarly faithful. And we see Felix who feared but not unto faith. He suppressed the truth. So Lord, open blind eyes and by your spirit draw people to yourself that don't know you. Soften the stubborn heart and Help us all to see the glory and the mercy of Jesus, who so willingly paid for our sins. It's in his name that we pray.